Oh, I think this might mean that we're live. And I'm probably the only one here. So it looks like Jack's here. Let me see if we're actually live. If we are, hello, everyone. I think we are. I think I found the stream. It's me. <laughs> um, anyways, I'll go ahead and post the link to join. Jack's not able to be here. I'll just give you a, a brief catch up on what's going on here. I am the only one that showed up for the show today. So I get to do the show. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, more people are coming. Yeah, the American one and Matthew Gates are joining <coughs> us. Wonderful. Let me see here. I'm just running around trying to figure out who's here. So anyways, I'll introduce myself. I am Dr. MJ Coco uh, from CocoForCannabis.com. I'm going to be your guest host this week. Um, Jack Greenstock is at a concert. Um, and there's a lot of music going on at the concert. And he definitely deserves a week off. So he's off doing that. He got the show started. And uh, Matthew Gates and the American one have joined me. So I'll turn it over to Matthew Gates and let him introduce himself. Yeah, for those who don't know, it's Matthew Gates. I'm an IPM specialist. And although I don't know what we'll talk about today, if you're curious to know where you can check me out, xenthanol.com or my YouTube channel, Xenthanol for Plant Health Pest Information. Wonderful, Matthew. I'm glad that you showed up today. I was chatting briefly with Jack before you got in here and and I'm like I'll start on my own I don't care I'll do it solo um so I'm glad that I don't have to stay solo for very long and we also have Tao here with us Tao welcome to the show Tao the American one sorry my uh my mute button was stuck no hello worries. doc Hello, Matthew, and everyone in chat. I am the American one. Most of you know me, but you can find me as the American one on YouTube or the American one underscore with underscore eighteen on the IG. And yeah, it's always good to be here. And uh, yeah, looking forward. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this should be fun. Um, you know, keep in mind, everybody out there that this isn't the normal sort of course of action for us but we're gonna do our best with it and have fun with it um so what are you guys up to matthew and Tao? what do you guys got going on these days uh i have a little bit of everything going on i you know most of you know i'm recently moved and things haven't been exactly the way i like but i have um i have plants that are happy i have i started up someone i was packing out seeds and uh had some of these Romberry by Cheesequake, and I'm like, I got to try these out. So I started, I, I got a whole bunch of those wet, and they're up and going. And uh, you know what, Doc? I have a question that oh, you right. might know, or Matthew might know, or anybody. Um, I noticed that, well, in the past, I buried some pretty uh, old stems underground. You know, like uh, when I was transplanting, I, I buried them a little. And some of them seemed to make roots and some of them seemed to not make roots. None of them rotted out on me or anything that was drastically bad. But I was wondering the capacity of a hemp plant in general. Do they have the capacity to grow roots when buried and not uh, exposed to uh, nefarious microbes or anything? Like, will they grow roots or is it not yes. a good idea? Well, it's just like cloning. So basically... 
the roots really want to grow out of the nodes, just like the branches right. and the leaves want to grow out of the nodes. They don't, you can get roots growing out of the internodal spaces on the stem, but you're going to get far more roots on the nodes. So if you buried another node, you'd get a lot of, of root growth out of that node. And when you're taking cuttings for clones, you should always cut just below or through a node so that roots will come out right at the bottom of that cutting. Um, and, and yeah, that's basically, you're, you're essentially kind of doing the same thing as a clone. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. I don't think it's a terrible idea either, but you're not going to get a lot of root growth in between the nodes there. So oh, right, right. I see growers do this because they had a seedling that was probably underlit and stretched quite a bit before it, oh, before the cotyledons and before the first true node. And so they'll be tempted to kind of bury a bit of that stem. Um, it, it, it's an opportunity for damping off. It's an opportunity for for sort of bad things. You're holding a bunch of moisture right. in the stem there. Um, and you're not going to get a lot of root growth out of that. And in the end, you know, we're talking about maybe a, a little sprout that might have been three or four inches long, but three or four inches is not that much distance on a fully grown plant, right? In terms of like distance from the soil to the first branches or whatever. So by the time the plant kind of grows up and becomes girthier, that a distance is, is no problem. So I always just transplant my seedlings and if they got a little lanky i'll prop them up i'll support them with something but i i don't like to bury them deeper tomatoes okay. though pretty cool yeah, to that's, do that yeah that's what yeah. made me i saw a post of this this uh woman who was starting up her seeds for the spring and she put like an inch of soil in a solo cup and put her seeds in there and then she she'd put another inch another one and pull out like she would have like 10 seeds in that cup she'd pull them out and put them in there an inch deep and as they grew, she would just continue to fill the, you know, the solo cup with so more soil. And maybe when they're that young, it might be different kind of stilts, uh, st blah, different kind. I of think tomatoes are kind of different, though. Yeah, of course, tomatoes right? They're more. They're yeah, more they're like a vine, you know, or they can. Yeah. They're more yeah. prone to root out of those internodal spaces on the stem. Um, it, it's a good experience to to try that sometime to take a, a cutting for, for doing a clone, um, cut just below one node, and then bury two nodes. So trim all the leaves and branches off the node above it too. Bury both of those nodes into your whatever media you're gonna try cloning in. And just as an experiment, do whatever you do for, for cloning that. And when you think it's got roots, excavate it and see where the roots grew off of that stock. If you have an aeroponic cloner, it's a hell of a lot easier to do this or a DWC cloner. Um, but you'll get roots out of the one node and you'll get roots out of the second node. And you might get like one, one root yeah. out of the middle in between those nodes or whatever. And it just shows you sort of where the plant wants to grow. If you get a, a tomato vine, if like any part of the tomato vine touches the ground, it'll start growing roots out of that. So it's... It's sort of it's a happier, different. Yeah. yeah, it's happier to root. A lot of plants have different sort of tendencies in those regards. Right, for that was sure. A cool question though, I like that. I like the question. I, yeah, I have a picture somewhere of uh, 
some I forget why, but someone was claiming that that was even wrong to try and get two nodes. But that is what what exactly what happened is what you. Uh, yeah, saying. I don't I don't actually clone that way. I only bury one right. of them just to show you when that does right. happen. Like they'll grow out the bottom, they'll grow out that second rep, but they won't really grow out of the middle. Um, now, how about if you scrape it? People are like, I don't scrape my stems when I do my clones, but perhaps I should. But what do you think about that uh, SOP of scraping the stem area that's not a node? to expose some of the under, like, I don't even know, what, what do you call that? Take it off the epidermis? Like the cambium? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you Is can risk effective? damaging the xylem, though, pretty easily on these plants. Um, I don't like it personally. I think it's yeah. like taking the skin off of your body. It's not great. Right. right. I, I, I kind of agree I, with that. That's I, why the reason that the roots are growing out of the nodes is because of the presence of growth hormones sort of located in those nodes that's why the branches grow out of there that's why the fan leaves grow out of there too um it's the presence of those gibberellins that are, are really causing everything to happen at the nodes and they're just local concentrations of those plant hormones so don't i don't think it's really so much the physical sort of scraping or those other things won't won't necessarily help as much yeah, I kind of thought that there was it was more um, undifferentiated cells that are can be exposed so that they could turn into root cells easier. I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's the way I have it pictured in my brain, you know? Yeah, I've never really done significant stem scraping as part of my cloning protocol, so I don't have a lot of experience with you know, what happens in practice with that, but I agree with Matthew. Um, I wanted to say one other thing just about the the burying the the stems. It, it really doesn't seem to be problematic with cannabis plants. I don't think you're going to get a lot of benefit out of it with cannabis plants, but I keep coming across this like landscaping advice about not burying trees and not mm -hmm. doing these other things because it really kind of can screw up other plants to bury them too deeply. Um, so I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you're gaining much by doing that, but I, I, with cannabis, I don't think it's really hurting your plants that much either a lot of people do it yeah i agree i think that it's like one of those things where it's not universal like tomato plants are like super herbaceous not that that's a prerequisite for that kind of thing working but like um that's what i think of or like some plants make like whole like uh you know they have they have like uh, uh rhizomes right which are like these really aggressive um usually subsoil root-like tissues but they're more like they're more like super root stems, really. And then even then, you've got subgroups of that. So yeah, you definitely got to know the physiology of the plant first. And 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 a lot of that cool research has been coming out recently. So um, that is very exciting. I used to, used to say, right, like there's not a whole lot of research. But more and more, I don't think I can say that <laughs> as much. You know, maybe some of the quality is not so great like we've seen in a recent episode. But, you know. Or like, for example, yeah, we certainly haven't gotten like satisfied with the amount of research that we have, Matthew, but we do. That's have true. More. We do have. We more. do have. Yeah. Volume has increased at the very least. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, there's there was the uh, Dr. Coco. Did you come across the um, did you hear about the AI paper that got uh, published in Frontiers that made a bunch of brouhaha? I, I read about that. You read about that, Tao. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely sure, Matthew. Give me a little bit more. Yeah, there's a picture of a of a, of a mouse um, that was that was very obviously sort of like a AI art type thing. 
um, and it had like a bunch of uh, like bulbs attached to this like um, structure that's kind of coming out of its stomach. And it's just like you look at it and you don't even I don't think you need much than like a more basic intuition that goes, ah, that doesn't look right. There's no like labeled structures and that kind of stuff. So anyways, um, basically it went through the whole peer review process without like this obvious like gap there's a, um, yeah, being recognized. Yeah, there's been a lot of that. AI is actually helping crunch the numbers on these things and look for suspicious things and situation yes. on previously published papers, especially image manipulation. Um, this is something that the scientific community had wanted to think was very rare if it happened at all um and there's been more and more sort of cases of some of them are pretty egregious and other this sounds like a pretty egregious example of this it. was like a super egregious this is like apparently yeah. i heard that somebody i i saw it because i i followed somebody on on uh on x as that, if that's what we're calling it now um where they're they're an editor for frontiers and they resigned uh because like I guess Frontiers doesn't give a good, they use a software. And I guess MDPI is like this too, where like, um, it's not easy to reject a paper. Okay. I don't know how it works. I'm not, uh, I can't really go into detail, uh, but I guess that was what they were saying. And so they didn't like that. Um, it seemed like in that particular case, there wasn't a really good process. If you saw something bad. Yeah. Um, so yeah. In this case, I definitely think that, I mean, obviously the the submitting author is guilty of fabrication, um, but it is the journal editor that accepted the manuscript that should be challenging things like that. Right. Um, when flagging them for the peer reviewers. So yeah, you submit, I mean, I've been through this process. I, I wouldn't blame the peer reviewers themselves, but I would put some blame on the editor that that let that slip past them. The editor is responsible for deciding that the article is like good enough to be sent out for peer review in the first place, and then ultimately responsible for making the decision after they get the comments from peer review that, you know, we're going to go forward with this with, you know, revise and resubmit, or it's good enough now, or it's not going to be appropriate for our journal. So you know, if there was an obviously made-up image, the editor should have gone through carefully the article and seen the image before ever sending it out to peer review. And if they had questions or doubts, or it seemed like something that a content expert would have to, you know, weigh in on, they should have flagged the image for the peer reviewers. And then they sent it out to the four or five, you know, academic specialists that are going to be doing the peer review. They would say, pay particular attention to the image on, you know, page four, it seems like it may be manipulated or something. What's your opinion on that? And they, they like add these little comments to specifically kind of raise that in the peer reviewers attention. Peer reviewers, to be perfectly honest with you, often skim the stuff unless they're really interested in it. Usually you get like one or two peer reviewers that are pretty interested in it and a couple that obviously aren't when you read their comments back. Um, and, and so I sort of understand how it could have gotten past the peer reviewers, but it shouldn't have gotten past the editor. So I do understand why somebody would re resign for- Yeah, I'm glad that you bring, I'm glad that you bring that up. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that, that's it.
I was just saying, I'm glad that you bring that up because I didn't want to make it seem well. That's what that was the contrast I was trying to draw there was that in other cases, perhaps this would be a lot more possible, a lot more easier to do. And like you said, there's there's other. It sounds like there's other steps that definitely you know would have been, uh, well, yeah, would have been would have been active. They're gonna have to right? change. This is happening there's, so often now. I was gonna, gonna say change this process. There's yes. other examples of people purposefully. Uh, trying to get bogus well, things I, published I and it went somebody, through and they I go through the process very totally, who does, yeah. yeah yeah who does that like that's that's what she's uh very well known for is essentially going in and being like hey this doesn't look right or like this is just an obviously just like fabricated um uh grid or um uh western blot or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. no i i i agree i think that there's been a lot of this, some fairly high profile cases of it. Um, and there's sort of two sides to it. There's a form of kind of accidental plagiarism that sometimes takes place that people are getting tripped up over. And then there's forms of like intentional data manipulation or image manipulation. Oftentimes the image manipulation is far more subtle than the, the example that you described, wherein you know, they're just trying to make the the independent variable that they're analyzing seem more prominent or important than it otherwise was. So they'll just kind of tweak or manipulate the images that way or manipulate data that way. Um, other times, you know, it, it, it and sometimes that's like the, the results were kind of in that direction anyways, and they just tried to like emphasize it and make it more sort of obvious or increase the p-value or whatever um in other cases they're just kind of making stuff up out of whole cloth and we need to kind of react to those two different styles of, of you know problematic papers differently too there's a big risk in all of this that people in general will will stop trusting science altogether right exactly i think that um yeah i think that what Don't made this started <laughs> yeah you're you're uh yeah you uh i'm a very don't go to uh, don't go to the netherlands tau don't go to the netherlands you might you don't want to meet your heroes or your villains i should say well i'm in i mean I'm an academic. I I publish in peer-reviewed journals. I I consider myself a scientist, um, and I take it personally on a on a certain level. Like, you know, what you do as a member of a group affects the reputation of the group. So, when individual you know, scientists do things that affects the reputation of all scientists. And mm -hmm. that's... That's why scientists need to scream out and point out the bad actors in any field. And, well, they are. you know, depart reality. They are, but it, mm. it, it's somewhat problematic the way that, that that's happening. A lot of resignations are being pushed for by people that probably didn't make these kinds of intentional mistakes of data manipulation. Yeah, some stuff is really bad. Other stuff is way more, like you're saying, like p-hacking, which can be, you know, 
and not as easy to see. In this case, it was like obvious to anyone. It doesn't doesn't require even a an academic background at all to be like, oh, this was not this is not correct. Uh, Yeah, but this person real just picture. put it in their paper. It wasn't even like the words. It was like the the art. It was art. It wasn't even like a, it was a cartoon, <laughs> right? A cartoon's Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I cartoon. I say I trust science. I don't trust scientists. Cause that's Oh, where the okay. that's where the problem lies, really. That's a It's philosophical science. question or a, a point, I, I guess. Right. And 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 part of the part of the problem is the way they label scientists now. Most of them are reading previous work by other people, and that's more like faith in other people instead of actually doing experiments themselves or verifying even No, anything. you're not considered, you're considered a researcher if you're just doing things that, you know, reviewing what other people have, have written. And th those aren't scientists. Scientists are definitely people that are, are doing primary research, not secondary research. So primary research is when you go out and observe facts firsthand or through some devices or whatever, but you're gathering new data. Secondary research is when you go to the library. So Right. if you're going to the library and that's all you're doing now every scientist has to go to the library to like you know figure out what's been done before and how i'm going to like learn from that so i can set up my my research And that's um faith so they're right not always there, experiments though. and in fact a lot of the research that we need to to get isn't from sort of designed experiments they're uh field work it's in situ observations that we need to do not not sort of experimental observations but Regardless, if you're calling yourself a scientist, you're doing some sort of primary research and or you're not calling yourself correctly. There you go. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and literature review is part of it. Like you need to know what other people have done in the field that you're you're working in. Um, and oftentimes it it's you know, in the literature review, which is an early section of published work. that you'll sort of show that you understand the body of work that you're contributing to. Um, but then you have to make your contribution as it were. Yeah, exactly. I I can always tell like, um, you know, the, a quality paper will have a really good section that goes over like this is what's been this is what we're talking about. Yeah. This is what's already been said. You know, like there's plenty of people who, and in a non-academic uh, setting, this is still really helpful, right? Like, you know, it shows that you actually know what's been done, and you're not like simply going like, oh, I discovered this thing that's interesting to me one day. No one's ever thought of it before. You know what I mean? That's very too convenient, Yeah, nobody you takes know, your like, work seriously. um, Yeah, you absolutely need yeah. to show your audience that you understand what other people have done in this area. Otherwise, it, yeah, it's very hard to sort of give it much credibility. Let me stop and welcome in our good Gromy Spartan Ground joined us today. So welcome, Spartan Ground. Thanks, Doc. Thanks. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit late, but I got here. I still got here. Busy guy, but I'm getting here. That's, that's beautiful. We're happy that you're here. <laughs> When we went live, it was like just me. Um, Was it just you? well, Matthew and Tao joined like before <laughs> we fully got connected to YouTube, I think. But yeah, it was, oh, I good. was just like, oh, gosh, I hope some people show up soon. <laughs> Uh, but they did. And now you're here and, and we're off and rolling. We're just Hell talking yeah. about some, um, you know, issues in publishing scientific articles that have come up recently in some cases of plagiarism and data manipulation.
Oh, interesting. Interesting. Who there isn't, but is there a regulating body in any way when it comes to scientific research that polices just that or no? Or is it kind um, of self there are for different disciplines? So disciplines usually have their sort of professional societies. Um, and they will often launch investigations and can censure or expel members that are found to have violated their code of, of conduct, their code of research, or their code of ethics. Um, but that's sort of discipline by discipline. And then you have the institutions. So, you know, most researchers work at either, you know, at NGO or at, at a university. So the university has its own um you know, safeguards at different nested levels too. So like, you know, the office of research and your department and, you know, the Dean of your college and things like that will all have some degree of oversight and ability to, to censure or to punish you in various ways. Um, I imagine the actual finding like, Hey, you're using my work. That's kind of self-reported usually. Yeah, well, now there's an industry of people that are are basically sleuths that go hunting through articles and stuff to try to find, you know, either plagiarism or data manipulation. Um, and I was reading recently about some AI tools that are being developed just to be able to go through and look for manipulated data in previously published works. Um Sometimes people will just change a few numbers to kind of make the thing that they're trying to talk about more prominent. And oftentimes they really believe that what they're saying is true. It's just the data doesn't show it quite well enough. Right. But, it, but they believe it's true. So I'm just going to I'm just going to make the data say what I believe is true, you know, and, and that's how these things happen. It's not like they're out there trying to make stuff up or just whatever but there's a lot of pressure um especially in in research institutions in our one universities to publish or perish to get stuff published and to get it approved in, in prominent journals and stuff and there's an incentive to say something interesting and when you're looking at data that isn't very interesting i can right. understand at least the temptation to Oh man, if this was a 10 instead of a hundred, it would be for a hundred <laughs> instead of a 10. It would be, it would be Significant. so much more yeah, illustrative of the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. I mean, so I and think you have that pressure happened. of the funding of where the funding's coming from. And I'm yeah. sure they're looking for some certain kind of a result and there's that, but it's still, when I look yeah, at that, I still hold yeah, I, I still hold hope that there's still, you know, a lot of good scientists and a lot of good people that are, are in it for the science. Well, not. like in some disciplines, you can't really lie. Like aeronautics. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you well, know, it's matters. not going to, reality is not going to support your, your equation if it's not correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what does one do when the people telling the truth are censored by our government? Well, I think oh, they, gonna, go other, they go I to other really governments. Answer all of the questions that there is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm sure I think we the have answer, the right answer. Yeah, I think the, the right answer is is that to have open uh, and free exchange of information, go to another country that's not censoring to you, and eventually that's going to get back to that original country. So, from my experience, people are talking about funding sources. 
if, if you have a, a private public kind of collaboration or if there's an industry that's supporting your research and that happens in some fields and it happens some a little bit in horticultural research not as much as like telecommunications research for example or other things like that so you know most of the time the the researchers are applying for grants from foundations who care much more about your application than about what your data says on the back end um so they're not usually pushing for specific outcomes for your research there are some funding agencies that are more interested in particular angles but you know, a lot of stuff gets funded by the NSF, the National Science Foundation. They really don't care. They care that you publish, but they don't care what you publish on the back end. Um, I've been involved in in several of those grants and can say that from firsthand experience. You have a, a pressure to get your results published, but not to publish specific results. Well, that makes sense. It makes me feel better. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are, are really doing this work because they're passionate about it, they're interested in it. Um, and we probably need to change some aspects of the culture of publication, which has been argued for, for quite a while, because it, it forces people that aren't ready, that don't have interesting things to say, to still publish something anyways. Um, they, even if they haven't done interesting research lately or whatever, they'll start mulling over old data sets to try to like pull another article out of the, the research that they have done because they need another article for their, you know, tenure and promotion or retention um, plan and they're going up for a review or whatever and they need more lines on their CV. That kind of pressure and stuff is ultimately, I think, what leads to these things more than people like wanting to mislead and other stuff. But at the same yeah, time, yeah, they're not so much like card-carrying villains who are like trying to deceive society. More so, it's like, man, I'd really like it if the impact factor was a little bit higher uh, overall or something. Yeah, or how to get into a journal with a higher impact factor, and in order to get accepted by this journal, I have to do something that's more groundbreaking than what I actually right. have here, which is just sort of like another study which reinforces points that we already know. Nobody's going to publish that anymore, even if that's the good work that you did, you know, so you want to tease something else out of it. And the thing that you teased out of it may not be fully valid. Yeah, for sure. Um, that was an interesting topic. You got any, any other thoughts, Matthew? Well, um, you were asking me for what I was up to. Um, I continue yeah, to prepare for this uh, presentation that I have for the Living Soil Summit that's coming up uh, in Pahrump, uh, in, yeah, in Nevada. Pahrump, Nevada. I'll be on the 7th, 8th, and the 9th. I think maybe the 10th. I forget now. But okay. um, I decided that I would be talking about uh, forest integrated pest management and pests in general, but more so that holistic stuff I like to talk about, about how... Um, how pests are able to adapt to plants and also some really interesting things regarding uh, the soil microbiome and, and, and pests as well. One of the, one of those being that, um, I don't know, this is really, this is kind of a weird thing to, to say, but like I've been reading a lot about plant viruses lately and a lot about viruses that colonize insects. And 
it's fascinating to me to read how, like, how often and to what degree some of these particles, like other microbes, bacteria, fungi, whatever, unlike unlike plant matter, just is prevalent, and and like maybe as far as we can tell, has like no effect on us because they're not compatible with our physiology or whatever. Um, like the the research report, one of the ones that I. reference in this presentation talks about um, viruses that attack caterpillars like budworms that we're worried about, which some of which can be found in commercial products, but like the soil apparently is a huge reservoir for these viral particles. And so and they come out from like precipitation onto leaves and that kind of thing. And that's where they end up. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, uh, it just changes your perspective, <laughs> I think. Like, imagine all the times you've inhaled a breath of air or, and there's like this moat of dust and like little viral particles on it without even realizing it or, or even just looking into like a trash can and all the, you know, You know beautiful that things that bloom in that thing, you know, so, indeed. yeah, Yeah, I don't know. right. Your It's, cheese um, in your refrigerator that you haven't gotten to for a while, right? Um, yeah, exactly. you know, I just read recently about the the smell after a rain. You know, the the smell of like fresh rain. Petrichor? Yeah, it, bacteria that's activated by the rain that we suddenly smell. So it's everywhere and it's like in everything and we experience it in a lot of pleasant and maybe not so pleasant ways. Yeah. Um, another thing that I that was interesting was uh, a report that went over how, you know, how aphids feed on plants, they get the sugars out of there, and then they basically excrete a bunch of sugary substance themselves. It's still sugary. It gets into the soil. And what they found was that I think this was a, a willow orchard, um, which was an odd thing to come to come across. Uh, but they were talking about a willow aphid. And basically, The sugary damp spot where the honeydew went to, uh, they had it like, like I want to say like five times as much microbial mass uh, in that area because of the sugars. But what's interesting, and I know some people like to put sugars into their uh, into their soil or their substrate or whatever, presumably for, uh, you know, this kind of thing of like feeding the microbes. But what was interesting is that because the honeydew is carbon rich but nitrogen poor. it actually ended up making the microbes, they were still limited by nitrogen. And so they ended up actually competing with the plant for nitrogen sources, rather than being like a facilitator of nitrogen uh, when, they, when they went, when they looked at it further. And that was kind of interesting um, how something that you wouldn't think uh, would be a big effector, but like aphids get really big when they colonize their plants, you get tons of them at once. And uh, they're also taking the sugars out of the plant, which would normally go to be doing other things for the plant. So in a way, it's kind of like a double whammy. Yeah, and that that same sort of the, the sugary stuff that the aphids expel is why the ants will farm them, right? Right, exactly. Everyone wants those sugars Yeah, so the some ants. way or another. Yeah. So maybe the, the ants being there, eating that sugar prevents it from breeding bacteria and getting into nitrogen competition with the plant. So maybe if you got aphids as a plant, you also want to have ants or are there other problems there? 
Maybe in some cases. I know that honeybees like to come in um, when there's no nectaries for certain or or maybe less of them. Uh, they will come in and they'll feed on um, aphid honeydew. And I guess in some regions, I guess like a lot of pine aphids, this is a lot of pine forests are like this because they don't have, obviously they don't like flowers. So the aphids that feed on the phloem sap, uh, they deposit the honeydew, the honeybees come and they drink it all up. And then there's it's like a special kind of, Uh, like pine honey or whatever. I guess it's popular in Eastern Europe. That's what I hear. But um, or Greece too. I think this was the case. Then it makes sense that humans would make use of this advantage, especially during like autumn and winter months when a lot of those plants might be not active. Yeah. Hold on, I got distracted. We're welcoming in Brandon Rost right. to our little soiree, as it were. Brandon, if you can hear me, welcome to the show. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just got here. I'm late. Uh, what's going on, everybody? Brandon Russ here. Welcome, Brandon. Um, I'm stepping in for Jack today, so we're just kind of having a, a free-ranging conversation right now. We're talking about the honeydew that's expelled from aphids. I was I gonna. You could figure out which one of us brought that up. <laughs> I was gonna. Yeah, kinda, exactly. I was gonna kind of like roll it back a little bit and just kind of talk about how, relatedly, I always kind of caution people from using sugars, like you're saying, Matthew, in yeah. in their compost teas and 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 adding like molasses as a cop as a popular one to water in, just because you know if you don't if you you're providing a big food source and you're gonna provide a like a bloom. a big bloom for the, your microbiology and but you, it's not a sustainable level uh, because you're providing that food so i think it's it's better off just to you know give this give the feed the soil um the right things that so that the exudates can produce that those kinds of things and attract the microbes that way rather than just throwing sugars on the soil I always kind of cautioned against it. I, I just didn't like, I always was afraid of like what you were saying. You get a big, huge population of something and it just starts taking more than giving to the soil. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that like, I think that that's why I have sort of a love hate relationship with, for example, like IMOs and things like that. Do I think that theoretically you can, I mean, like it's sort of like, it makes sense to a certain degree. Right. And I'm not saying that doesn't work. Uh, but it I think it's important to like define what you mean by work and also how are you evaluating that is working. So like if you're I mean, sometimes you can create, you know, like like anyone who's grown mushrooms or anyone who's who's brewed beer knows that you can obviously make a situation like uh, 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 prioritize for some of the microbes and then they outcompete the other ones. And that's kind of the the benefit. But you do that in a controlled way or like other fermented products. But like in nature or in a soilscape or in a substrate, you might not have that control. And also there might be things that um, do survive that process. Uh, so I don't know. It's like, and it's very hard because a lot of times I think people are not necessarily checking to see what, what could be getting added. And sometimes there's funny little uh, things that we didn't consider, or we just don't know what, they, what we don't know. But that's the thing is that I'm curious what we feel about like, uh you know the, the feeding of microbes in the, in the substrate because on the one hand like the plant when it's excreting exudates 
um, there are there are other things that are being excreted that are actually kind of like our own immune system, right? Like they create this sort of barrier. Um, there's like enzymes and other things that might even be antagonistic to certain microbes. But if you if you're able to give them a jump start and there might be parasites of some degree, then maybe you're actually uh, causing a problem, you know, in the same way that maybe if you leave, uh, I don't know, like certain substances on your skin or like a sugary compound or something. I don't know. Like I'm just, this is why we like have basic hygiene, right? So that we don't get like a rash. Sometimes people might have uh, a colony on their body. They might get staph infections easily, things like this. This is the kind of thing that comes to my mind. And I just feel like, say what? Oh, yeah. put chlorine in the swimming pool because otherwise you get skin rashes from bacteria being in that swimming pool. Absolutely. I think there are ways to do it right, though. And I think that and I also am a big fan of like the research that's come out that shows that, you know, you can have more accentuated you know, microbial consortia, obviously we have Brandon here, who I'm sure has a lot to talk about on that subject, but, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, random stuff or perhaps like things that aren't being tested. I don't know. You know, there's the aspergillus thing too, but I think that's a little bit um, unrelated to what I'm talking about, just for like microbes that are beneficial, like plant growth, promoting bacteria and things like that. Um, the, the balance can be more delicate than we give it credit for. Sure. Which is, oh, there's a, it was a question I want to get to that came up in the chat, but I want to make sure everybody has their fill on that because it takes the conversation in kind of a different direction. Um, Brandon or, or Matthew, did you have anything else that you want to just Brandon because he was called out there? If you have anything you want to add to this conversation? Well, um, when it comes to the populations or the types of microorganisms that are proliferating in any given system at any given time are going to be contingent on substrate energy resource carbon source uh, uh, here's a good example if you put um, a bunch of nitrogen into a system you're going to have a bunch of bacteria that are going to utilize that nitrogen for, for energy for energy resource and for their metabolism uh, and so those types of microorganisms will will cycle and you'll get something like, uh, you know, nitrifying bacteria, you'll get denitrifying bacteria. It'll start that cycle and it'll go through microbial uh, cycling as well. Different uh, microbes will proliferate at different times depending on the 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 chemicals that are being converted in that soil from that nitrogen. Uh, that's just one example, but there's tons of different species of microbes that are producing all different types of chemical compounds and the best way to figure that out is going to be through genetic analysis so that's something that we're working with a company that i just um uh, i met recently uh, the guy actually is a chemical engineer but he works in uh with the ai technology that's going to be able to expedite the process of identifying the genetic component to the soil microbiome yeah i guess my i guess my consideration the thing that like for example i i gave a presentation on the future canvas project like maybe a year ago now talking about how uh interestingly like botrytis for example systemic pathogen um it can 
in the beginning state, if it's like spore, if it's like um, developing as like a spore onto the tissue rather than coming in in a different way as a different propagule or in through the root system or perhaps vertically transmitted in some cases, uh, as it's growing on the plant, it can actually make use of free amino acids and sugars and um, other nutrient compounds, uh, kind of like a living root itself. So when people apply like a foliar feeding or things like that, as an example, then, um, you know, the botrytis gets supercharged too, kind of. And so my, I guess my concern is that like, although there might be some more benign microbes that don't have any like parasitic tendencies, and for those, I'm sure it's great, but I think there are some pathogens that um, they can play both sides and that's kind of what makes them so lethal. And I wonder if like upsetting If you upset maybe only one or a couple um, uh, factors, then maybe it's like more extreme of a of a problem, more of an imbalance. But if there's more, if there's more proportionality, or that maybe it's or more, maybe other things are also added at the same time, then maybe you don't have such an extreme. Because in the in my example, and um, if we are able to share share the screen, I can. show it um but basically yeah the uh there you go the uh the microbes were um uh the microbe population was higher um but the it was still nitrogen limited so perhaps if carbon and nitrogen had been increased um well there's maybe there's there what's wouldn't called have been this net bottleneck for example there's there's net mineralization of nitrogen when the carbon to nitrogen ratio is you know at like a 20 to 1 that that's when you're going to get more liberation of nitrogen through both the breakdown of organic matter in soil and also through nitrogen fixation through microbial uh metabolism in the production I of mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's other microbes, I guess, right? So like, that's fine. But if some of those microbes are using the nitrogen uh, or the carbon are like, um, they're kind of um, sequestering it and doesn't get into the plant, maybe that's not always the right trade-off. Or, or maybe they grow to a proportion. Because the other thing is that like, Um, parasitism is a spectrum, right? So like sometimes uh, a, a, a microbe that's maybe processing some of these compounds and making them more bioavailable. I mean, at a certain level, maybe that's good, but if they go higher, then they can have other knockoff effects that might be sort of problematic for the soil, for the very dis, uh, discrete soil ecology, the, the rhizoplane rhizosphere. interaction i guess i guess that's what i'm what i'm what i'm getting at because if they do it too much then maybe they actually lock out the the nitrogen like like they talk about here um i don't know can you see this example yeah Yeah, we're seeing the screen. Yeah, that's actually yeah correct. so so like this was the aphid example here from this from this uh report and uh what they had mentioned this is the best one yeah this is So they were saying that in nature, the soil microbiome shifts right upon aphid herbivory that may be caused either by the, the through fall of the honeydew, which they found in the report, uh, influencing carbon and nitrogen fluxes, or by the changes in root exudation patterns. So they can also have a secondary effect on how the plant uh, uh, 
excretes exodus in the first place. And in a similar way, I know that our yeah, bodies will change what we produce, right? Anytime you change carbon dynamics in soil, it's going to change the it's going to change well, yeah. the microbiome. Well, yeah. The sugar would be basically adding carbon, wouldn't it? Yes. Well, yeah. But like, can you do too much? I guess my my pro my point is uh, that it seems like you can. You can't do too much carbon. You can. You know, that if you put too much sugar in the in the substrate. Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, and one of the things too is if let's say you add a bunch of molasses into a system that's not well drained and you have anaerobic spots, what you're going to do is you're going to proliferate those microbes that are that are anaerobic may not be like a flocculative anaerobe that could be probiotic. It could be something that's producing sulfides and um, um and uh, hydrogen compounds, hydrogen sulfide compounds that are, aren't going to be conducive, you know, or they could be pathogens that are living in those uh, types of conditions, you know, and you're going to basically give those things a bunch of food. And I've seen it happen, you know, someone's like, oh man, you know, I've got, they had, uh, I, somebody had uh, root rot. And I don't know exactly what it was, but I could see it was definitively root rot. And they, uh, they exasperated the problem by adding molasses to the system because like, oh, I just need to like stimulate the microbiome. And, and it did the exact opposite of what they should have done. They should have just let it, you know, dry out, you know. Well, yeah, that's what I was describing in, in the beginning. But yeah, I was I, I was kind of surprised that you went the other direction beforehand. But yeah, now I see that you, that's what I was trying to say. And um, this highlighted section here, I just wanted to make sure I quoted it right. Um, so what they found was that in this particular case, the honeydew was carbon rich, but nutrient poor, or I'm sorry, <laughs> nutrient poor, nitrogen poor, uh, and induced the population of soil microorganisms to increase and then compete for the limited nitrogen, which can increase the nitrogen immobilization rate and result in the depletion of inorganic nitrogen. And so they say, thus, the honeydew deposition could indirectly decrease the soil nitrogen content through enhanced microbial activity, where microorganisms could emerge as potential competitors of, in this case, willow plants for nitrogen resources. So I just thought that was interesting, because uh, I do know people like to do that. Um, but I do think that there's, I think it's hard, because you can't really tell an example like you bring up or like what I bring up with like botrytis um, or like root rot, for example, or some other pathogen that uh, like a necrotroph is they they break down the cells and then they sop up the nutrients. So they're actually really adept at like taking um, nutrients from like the free environment, whereas other parasites are perhaps not as effective at this um, as they are. But like I think that a lot of these microbes are like hanging around um, so sometimes in like an inactive state, um, and it's not it's not immediately obvious to people um, that they might be harboring it. And I guess that's kind of like that's just that IPM biosecurity mindset. But if you're able to guarantee that that's not the case, then that's a, that's different, I suppose. So now we have chat asking. So what am I supposed to use sugar? Or am I not supposed to use sugar? 
That's what I'm saying. That's what the question. That's my question too. <laughs> when it comes to molasses, guys, I've always heard that if you're going to use molasses, you should use blackstrap molasses, which is molasses with the lowest sugar content of any of the molasses. I, I know a little bit of, about molasses because I, I did work with sugarcane farmers. Um, molasses is everything that isn't sugar in from the sugarcane plant. So when you're refining sugarcane, you end up with two products, refined sugar and molasses. And the more you refine it, the, meaning the more of the sucrose of the, the sugar that you're extracting from that solution, um, what you're left over with is blackstrap molasses, which is actually very low in sucrose. Um, so there's not really a lot of, of sugar left in it. It's What is it? it it's everything else. All the other sort of... Um, minerals um, from the plant all the other um you know substances from the plant it's basically everything that isn't sugar that's from the sugar cane plant or at least as a sucrose right there's still other sugars or no i i believe that it's pretty much the the sugar has been stripped out of it there may be some other sort of more complex um or even pretty simple yeah sugars or carbohydrates um but the idea there, and I think the recommendation is you're basically getting all those other things that are going to be beneficial for the microorganisms. It's not, it's not as much about just adding carbohydrates or simple carbohydrates in terms of sugars. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Somebody's saying that it also in, in contains endophytes. Um, my, my point was just it doesn't contain a lot of sugar anymore. So I think a lot of people think of molasses and they, you know, they think of it as being sugar, as being a sweet thing. Blackstrap molasses really isn't sweet. Um, use it sometimes to make molasses cookies. And if you want those molasses cookies to taste well, you need to add a lot of sugar back into them. You, you know, I'm just going to like sweeten them with the molasses. Um, I so, see, I see. Yeah. Um, it, there is still some. And there's probably more sugar in molasses than in like a lot of the other things that we put into the the gardener if you're using that. Um, but I, I thought it was telling that the recommendation is to use the style of molasses that has the least sugar. That makes a lot of sense. Also just for dosing. Yeah, so it does seem like that's, yeah, I guess I think that that's a, uh, it's a topic I wanted to broach for sure. I think that, um, there might be ways to make it work to your advantage, but um, I think you got to be careful. I don't think it's so much for the sugar, but for the carbon. Yeah, there may be other carbohydrates, right? Exactly. Carbon elements in there um, combined in different ways that, that are useful to the plant or the useful to the microorganisms that are then feeding the plant. I agree with that, Brandon. Yep. Cool. That was interesting. Interesting conversation. Are you guys think... ready for me to... Sure, change the topic a little bit. Yeah, I just want to yeah. make one last statement on the oh, molasses. I think that as a home grower, you're pretty safe if you're adding known biology. So if you have a, a, a like maybe a powdered like uh, Bokashi Earthworks offers, you know, powdered microbes, and you know what the microbes are, and you know for sure what microbes you're expanding, that would be a good time to add molasses because then you're also going to improve your populations of the microbes you're trying to get down into your plant. Yeah, I would guess a little bit is is a really little bit is more than you think because micro there's really little the microorganisms. So 
just a little bit of sugar water. Cause like I, when I think of life, I think of sugar and water, you know, that's what like kind of pushes life along. And, um, pizzas too. Metabolism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's what produces it, what drives respiration sort of energy, but it's not what drives <laughs> photosynthesis. So right, right. Be, yeah. But the microbes, the microbes don't probably don't need all that much sugar when you think about how, yeah. Yeah. so a little bit of molasses i think it's good and it's in a lot of products what i was gonna say it's in a lot of products like that recharge has molasses in it already so there's there there and i've read other things maybe i'll go look through my things about the molasses there was some report on um it is effective in certain aspects for sure i think it can be effective in certain grows that are dependent on microbial activity for for plant fertilization um who was it that just said they've used it oh art man um says he never uses sugar products in hydro if you're growing hydroponically don't don't use molasses either um the, the you're not i mean hydroponic is a different style of fertilization where we're giving chelated nutrients that the plant can uptake directly um the molasses or any of these sugar products are designed to feed microbial populations in the media that will then have interactions with the plants to provide the plants with some of the things that the plants aren't getting from chelated hydroponic nutrients because you're not fertilizing that way. So absolutely, Art Man, don't, don't. And hydroponics includes any kind that time that you're fertigating. If you're mixing nutrients with the water, you shouldn't be adding things like sugar or molasses or other things like that to them um it, it's something that comes up in amended grows that are depending more on microbi microbial activity to break that stuff down so you know it's jmj12 my hydro what's that i use microbes in my my hydro okay well then that's organic style of fertilization it's not it's not a hydroponic style of fertilization so i'm not talking about just growing them in water or something i'm talking about I thought you meant like don't use molasses, not microbes. Yeah. No, I, oh, did I mishear you? Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah I just I think times he... to use microbes and molasses too. But if you're using microbes to to process nutrients, that's not really hydroponically feeding. I mean, it, it could be, but that's where we sort of draw some of these lines between sort of what is hydroponic and what is uh, a, like an amended grow. Um, where the nutrients are already present and need to be broken down or where they're being mixed in a chelated form into the water itself. That's what I'm talking about, the distinction there. So there are- Oh, I see, I see. There are microbes that you may add to your hydroponic water, for example, to like keep it clean or to do other things like that. Um, I'm not entirely sure what Brandon is adding microbes to, but I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that we're feeding- you're either feeding it, the plant or you're feeding the, the microbes in the soil. Um, and I'm adding it to my cocoa directly. Go ahead. My cocoa well, which I microbes? Use... I guess, I mean, there's definitely microbes you could apply, but do you mean for like, you mean uh, like you the siderophores and that sort of thing? Functional probiotic. It's a bacillus species. It's got the purple non-sulfur bacteria and fermentative yeast. I use it in a, uh, bi-weekly. It just uh, helps with you know, overall plant health, you know, sure, it's not part of fertilization. Well, it's not, it's not in itself a fertilizer. And you're not going to feed those microbes molasses. No, definitely not. That's, yeah. That's so that's why I was confused. Right yeah. That's uh, why I was confused. Yeah. Cause that's not the same. That's not really, I, I see now. I'm just saying. Yeah. That in, yeah. 
hydro system, I am using microbes though. I do inoculate. I do inoculate to help with like pathogen suppression, overall plant health, mitigating some stress responses, like sure. over those types of things, phytohormone production. Yeah, like I just that. don't want people to think that, that that's different than what I was saying. I'm just saying that you're not, I, it's in terms of fertilization, if you're fertilizing with the help of microbes because you've amended nutrients that need to be broken down with microbes in your soil, then that's a situation where you would use molasses in plain water or other additives in plain water. If you're feeding in DWC or in any kind of fertigation system where you're mixing nutrients in with the water itself, you're never going to want to add molasses to that. That was my point. All right. And th this next question was sort of along those lines. Um, FCM, if I'm saying that, EFCIEM asked me if my thoughts about um, bottom feeding in cocoa have changed at all or have evolved at all through time. Um, and I wanted to address that. This is a different style of what goes on with nutrients in the media um, and is really a, a different approach to fertilization. Um, with cocoa or any substrate, when you're fertigating, meaning that we're mixing nutrients in with the water, um, the, the water and the nutrients are taken up through different processes by the plant. So a lot of growers often think of it like a straw that the plant's sort of like just sucking up the water that we've mixed together with, you know, CalMag and nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and, you know, silica and a bunch of other things. And the plant's just sort of like sipping that up with a straw. But the plant actually takes the, the water in through osmosis and it moves the nutrients in through diffusion or transport processes separately than the water comes in. There needs to be water coming in in order for it to do those transport processes. And then the water in the xylem is what sort of moves the nutrients through the plant. So, um, but you mix them together, right? And we get this fertigation solution. And there's always gonna be, the plant almost always takes up the water faster than it takes up the nutrients. And some water is evaporated out of the pot. So, if you water with salty water with fertigation solution and let that pot sit for a while, the water is going to become saltier and saltier in there. And so we water again and it kind of pushes the, the salty water out the bottom and is replaced by less salty water because there's more water, same amount of salts, but more water. Um, when you go to bottom feed, you're introducing everything at the bottom and it's being wicked up into the media. So the salty water gets whipped up into the media and right at the top of the pot, water's evaporated off, leaving those salts behind. So my thoughts on that really haven't changed. That absolutely happens. So when you bottom feed with fertigation solution, you're gonna end up with salt deposits near the top of your media. Um, they're going to be taken up through the wicking action of the water, and they're going to be left there when the water evaporates out of the system. Um, that eventually will cause toxic root zone conditions where the plant can't live. And that happens in autopots, but only right at the top of the autopot. 
basically, I, I know growers and I work with growers that, that do really well growing in auto pots, but they're growing in them for about 12 weeks, maybe 13 weeks at the upper end. Um, and they're fertigating at pretty low electrical conductivity. So they're not putting in a lot of salty water in, in the first place. And the, the combination of that short duration and pretty low EC allows them to get 14 weeks out of that system, 13, 14 weeks out of that system, no problem. Um, if you had to go 30 weeks, I think you'd have bigger problems, but we don't. So it, it, it's fair to use that system for, for short-term annual plants like, like cannabis. If you're gonna do a short veg, flip them quickly and, and grow over that way. Now, you're definitely gonna end up with salt deposits in the top inch or two of your media, and you're not gonna get roots growing there. And once that happens, you should never top feed because if you do come in and top feed, you're gonna be putting those salts back into solution and pushing them back down into the root zone where the roots are growing and it'll be toxic for them. So you go with the bottom feed, you can get 13, 14 weeks out of it and harvest your plants and then uh, hopefully recycle that cocoa, which would require a pretty heavy rinse because there's going to be a lot of, of salt buildup in the top there. So definitely see growers doing this, getting away with it. Um, but like the basic laws of physics in terms of what's happening with the, the water and the salts stays the same. It's just how are we kind of getting through that with an autopot system? So that's my take on that. And this actually came up on my show this week too. So I, I wanted to address that question. Oh, uh, but that doesn't happen with the humates because the humates aren't salt and you can use those in cocoa, which is pretty cool. You're still going to end up with a concentration of anything that's dissolved in the water, Brandon, that doesn't evaporate like water is going to end up concentrated in the top of a, of a bottom feed system. Because it will ride the water up, and then the water will evaporate out. No, I don't. I don't feed. There. I don't feed. I don't feed into the reservoir. I keep microbes in the reservoir, and then I uh, top. I top feed in an auto. Right. Pot so system. I'm only talking about about fertigating. Yeah, I just top I just top feed when I do the auto pots. Yeah. So that that's a that's an amended grow. You're adding nutrients to the soil itself or to the media itself instead of adding mm, fertigating with water with water and nutrients. If if the nutrients are dissolved in the water, then it's fertigating. If the nutrients aren't dissolved in the water, then it's just irrigating. If no, the that's nutrients what are added to the pot, and the water comes in as plain water. That's irrigating an amended no, soil. No, 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 no. I'm using fertilizer in. The cocoa grow. It does both, it sounds like to me, Doc. That's what I'm doing. I'm the, yeah. I'm running cocoa, but I'm running the I run this every two weeks. I I top feed with this in solution. So I just top water with fertilizer. Now, Doc, is there any way you could precisely dial in the nutrients where when the water evaporates, all the nutrients will be out of the system, thus not oh. leaving anything behind? Yeah, not exactly. I don't know how that would work. We try to get close. <laughs> That's really what we're doing with nutrient recipes. Right. We're trying to get close. Um, growers like to sort of push EC or give more than they need to, and that always leads to buildup. But some water also just evaporates out of the media. So some water, if you're in a whatever fabric pot or a plastic pot, some water is just evaporating out. 
and whatever is mixed into that water is not evaporating it's getting left behind it's it's coming right. out of solution when the water leaves so now, you'd have to sort of tune it for that too and perfection there yeah. yeah, now could you rinse hard. away will a, will a will a really good quote flush rinse away the bad things that are left behind or the excessive things that are left behind or is that not going to work back? so in in top feed or in a bottom feed system like it takes you know the way we run cocoa the way i teach people to run cocoa you're basically keeping your cocoa saturated okay and if you do one watering say with like way higher ec you won't notice that right away you won't notice it on the second day you won't notice it on the third day you might start to notice it on the fifth fourth or fifth day and you'll see it maybe on the sixth and seventh day so it takes like that much that many fertigation cycles to basically work it down through the media right and then eventually push it out the bottom so if you have a top feed system where you've accumulated a lot of salt up at the top you better flush several times the container volume of water through in order to actually get all that salt not just down a little bit but all the way down and through the bottom of the pot it, it's really a dangerous thing to do because you're likely to stop flushing while the the salty water is in the root zone where it will adversely affect the plant so the good people at auto pots tell you never top feed once you start working on our system never top feed because if you top feed that'll push those salts back down and they'll become problems for your roots That makes sense, uh, yeah. Tom. Interesting, yeah, yeah, because that's yeah. that's even worse when the salt is in the root zone instead of at the top where there's not right. As many it's roots it's anyway. worse. You might right. as well just stick to the devil that brought you there. Keep accumulating just, salts in the top and just hope that you'll get to the bottom where those right. salts at the top yeah. become problematic. And that's basically how people are growing in auto pots. They're right. all ending up with it's salt. just another reason if you're if you're growing in cocoa and you're using salt, yeah. you should the humates because then you have to worry about those precipitation reactions occurring. Uh, we talk about that. I'm not comfortable recommending that to the people that follow my recommendations, Brandon, but I'll talk to you about it. If you want me to, to, to try that system, I'd probably be willing to, to give it a, a swing. But Oh, I could send you some if you want, man. It's, it's, it's awesome, and it's super simple because you don't even have to pH anything. No, I, yeah, let, let, let's talk about it sometime. I, I'd, be, I'd be interested in doing a side-by-side -side maybe with that. I, I like using, to, to I've know been using it for, for years it. now since this came out, and I got to say, I get good results with it. So I, I highly recommend it. Good. But I was going to chip in and just say that I agree with you, Dr. Coco, that it's a better system designed for an organic situation. And, and that's how I've run them in the past. And I've got good results that way. Yeah, I yeah, agree. it's kind of like a sip container that has the automatic water on it. Absolutely, like, much. An automatic. Is, yeah. yeah, automatic sip, but it keeps it more wet than I liked, and that's why I stopped. It was just a little bit higher. I don't know. Maybe there's ways to change it now. It's been a while since I've done it, but maybe there's a way that you can control how much. But to me, it, it seemed more wet than I needed. So my workaround was was when I filled the pots, I would build the pots with the the clay balls. Uh, first to elevate the soil a little bit off so that the uh, it was like one or two layers of those clay balls and that seemed to help a lot but like when I went to harvest and I pulled a pot out of that system and it felt like it was like 50 pounds I was like what is going on well let me say this Burton I, I mean I know 
based on sort of different styles of growing, you can become very sensitive to having too much water in the pot. But, and I know I've said this before, the problem is never having too much water, right? DWC is a thing right. because plants can deal with having lots of water. Yeah, it's the air, yeah. I don't know, but... Right, the problem is the hypoxic water, the dead water, water without dissolved oxygen in it. Yeah. Um, if you're keeping your res aerated in the, the auto pot system, then it, it's coming in the bottom with, with good oxygenated water that's really different than like the stale water that's in a peat container, you know, the day after you've watered it or whatever. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. But Just then, to, but, yeah, but to me though, if it's sitting in that, like it's still sitting in that, in that container for how long i did get i was lucky enough to get the uh, i didn't get the plastic ones i got the uh the smart pot pots and i got the big ones the seven ones but i think that helped a lot too having the the breathable outside you know edges having yeah having good drainage i think definitely helps um creating some root space or some air space in the media too so you go to a higher porosity mix or add perlite or other things like that now, um, have you guys heard of this empty bucket system, I think, where they put like a uh, airstone in underneath every bucket, right? Or is that I'm, something I imagined? In I've my seen, head? I've seen the air, the uh, Autopot has, uh, they call it the air dome, but uh, I never got it. And I'd seen, um, that's funny. I just found my lighter. It was in my lap. I was looking all over for it. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I didn't like it. And from what I've heard from other people, and it made sense to me was, is that it did more, negative by pulling in warm air from the from the room from the grow room and flooding your root zone with warm air then really a lot of oxygen i yeah i agree with that pretty much too um the roots need oxygen the roots prefer to get their oxygen directly from the water water roots at least they mean that the hempy grow they i think they train some roots to be air roots and some roots to be water roots basically Um, um but the, you know, roots will take the oxygen right out of the water if it's there. Um, if you know, it's not there, then they need to be exposed to air so that they can get the oxygen in the air. But, I, yeah. I saw one person do this once, um, used oxygen as the aeration in the thing. Um, is that, it's why don't oxygen. people do that? Yeah. It's expensive. It probably is more expensive, very expensive, I would imagine. But this would it no, be really. would it be helpful? Would it actually even help? Or would it be like you yeah? Get water to be super saturated with oxygen. I don't know if bubbling oxygen through it is one of the ways to do that. You can get water to be super saturated with um, hydrolysis. And so anybody that's not adding a prodigious amount of calmag to their water, we can't do this in cocoa gross because we add a lot of calmag and calcium sort of renders these systems inoperable, but they make um, little devices that you drop into your water that pass an electrical current through the water and does hydrolysis. So it splits the hydrogen from the oxygen. Um, oh. And that oxygen then stays in solution and you can super saturate water with oxygen using hydrolysis. Um, mm. And there is, like consumer devices made for this, but we can't do it with fertigation because when you're mixing a bunch of nutrients into that water, those nutrients, especially the calcium, will precipitate on those electrical probes 
and render them useless. Right. Yeah, right. but if you're if you're using like an uh -huh. autopot system or something like that with plain water because you're amending your nutrients, um, it might be an interesting thing to look at. They're like yeah, cause, hundred dollars. They're not cheap, but I was gonna say using an air stone, you're getting what is it, eight, 70, 80 percent nitrogen is in our air. Like the nitrogen yeah, the so air we breathe is like, yeah, almost all yeah. So there's yeah, not you're not adding a lot of oxygen, you're adding nitrogen maybe somehow. Like I don't even know, but I always thought about that, how, yeah, but that hydrolysis, like you're saying, it separates H and the two and the O, and you get O. Yep. That's got to be really helpful. I was really excited about when I saw it in the first time, and then I kept doing research and reading into it and talked to people that had tried it, and it was very obvious that it's not going to work with, with water that has a high calcium concentration, which is like, I mean, definitely what we fertigate with in cocoa. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, if you get one, be sure to keep me in the loop there, Tao, because it'd be interesting. But check it out. Right. For like organics or an autopot system, like you're saying, if it's just a sip container, even that, that, that yeah, you put straight water in there and it's that's what you do anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And being able to keep it oxygenated. Cool thing about hydrolysis is you can oxygenate water that's too hot. Um basically most water if we're just bubbling it or fountaining it basically the two ways that we usually do oxygenation is pump water or pump air through the water or pump the water through the air i prefer pumping the water through the air um as opposed to an air stone and an air pump um a couple of reasons for that but anytime the the surface of the water is adjacent to air, it will absorb the oxygen. So we're trying to increase the surface area between the air and the water. And when you have like a little fountain going with the water and it creates that splash, you get a lot of tiny droplets that will absorb water and then fall back into the tank or absorb oxygen and then fall back into the reservoir. Um, and you usually can do that and keep your reservoir a little bit colder. So you wanna have a, a reasonably cold res below 70 degrees really like 68 is ideal the colder you go the more oxygen it can hold but if you get it too cold you're going to shock the roots when you water with ice water so um but the cool thing about hydrolysis is even if the water's in the mid 70s even if it's like 80 you can still effectively oxygenate the water and you cannot effectively oxygenate water with an air pump or a water pump if it's like 75 or 80 degree water but you can with hydrolysis so that's a and sort of another little bonus there if you're doing like a hempy bucket that water might be warm something anyway. similar that we've talked about before yeah. with regards to oxygenation was like nano bubbles nano bubbles and micro bubbles and how apparently they can have uh, interesting properties um like for example like with oxygenation for the plant and also i think it's been said that it can um be negative for certain pathogens if you run the nanobubbles through uh, like piping structures and things like that uh but i'm forgetting the details off the top of my head i don't see it in use a lot personally but i know that there's like um i know that uh japan in particular it's very popular and I think it's popular in some other places too, but it hasn't like caught on um, maybe as, as much as possible, as much as it could, partly because it, you know, um, it's a bit of an investment.
Yeah, indeed. I do want to say that using microbes in like a, a more uh, hydroponic uh, setting, I mean, like, I think that was part of the miscommunication earlier for me was like, um, we say microbes, but we have to define what that, you know, what do you mean by microbes? Like, um, you know, there's a lot of microbes that are going to be nutri for nutrient cycling, and then others are going to be for like, you know, they'll have like beneficial plant growth qualities of various kinds, sometimes contextually. Like even Bouveria bassiana, a paper came out recently. It's been known for a long time, but it was just looking at all of the different um, beneficial effects that Bouveria bassiana can have in in and and on plants. Um, you know, irregardless of like uh, its ability to kill insects and things like that. Yeah, so that kind I of stuff is always interesting. I read that paper. It's awesome because it talks about how it can work as an endophyte as a free living soil microorganism that helps break down and cycle nutrients. It does all kinds of stuff. It's not just a, an insect parasite. Yeah. One of the, um, one of my favorite examples for like how important the proportion even for certain microbes is, and it's one of the, the sort of litmus or the impetus for what I was asking about earlier with uh, honeydew and sugars and, and the soil is that like, um, Like, for example, oh, my seeds are often slept on. I think I've talked about this before, but like, you know, you'll get these situations where some of these microbes, they will, they'll break down, like Bouveria, for example, like if it breaks down the cuticle or the, the exoskeleton of, of an insect, that releases a bunch of various nutrients just from the, you know, osmotrophic you know, uh, oozing and enzymatic processing that they do. And then other microbes come in and then they can make some of those nutrients more mobile and that's a happy circle. But if you don't have uh, something that's doing that critical role, then their ability to like mine, you know, phosphorus or nitrogen or whatever from like dead insect carcasses or something like that or other, other organic matter Um, is severely limited. So, you know, not only you might be adding some of these in some way, perhaps you might be seeding your soil. And I think that's a good thing. But then it's very hard to tell, like, well, did it take? Like, I don't know if it's a guarantee always, you know what I mean? So It's one of the hardest things with, um, I think, organic growing is when you, right now, I feel there's a huge focus on microbiology, as there should be, I suppose. But if you're going to focus on microbiology, it's kind of almost like a given that you're going to have to focus on being able to see them. And if you want to be able to see them, you got to get a microscope. And that's a barrier to entry for a lot of people, a pretty big one. But uh, a lot of these practices, I feel like, what I hear about them when I do them myself or, or don't do them. It's just like, I've abandoned most of them because I feel like I'm just doing this because I believe it's going to work or I believe that there's a bunch of good and not bad, you know, bacteria or whatever organisms. But um, I don't know. I, and I don't know. It just feels like a lot of just faith stuff. And, and maybe that's fine. Maybe, maybe it's, and that works and that's great. But I've, I've noticed that if I just stop doing a lot of the stuff and, My plants look good still. <laughs> It's yeah, like... you can grow without it. Certainly, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, uh, I was also reading a, a report about um, like uh, breeding for drought tolerance and how like, you know, it's just like people just don't understand and don't appreciate that 
you breeders have to work within the traits with traits within uh, uh what's possible of the plant right and there's a physics problem like we were saying earlier you know like with some research it's you can't really get away with um uh with like a really uh, oblique or overt um uh falsification um but like if you uh if you if you're um sorry <laughs> i lost i did lose my train of thought but i switched how i wanted to say this but regardless yeah if you have if you have like um the plants they have to grow they have to grow and they have to defend themselves and so they're going they have finite resources um and so when we get into these really detailed discrete interactions um you know you might have a plant that comes out that's really drought tolerant but then the productivity is very low or something or the quality yeah. isn't the same or whatever because of the breeding it parents are not I mean, yeah, it's, exactly. It's it's, it's usually exact... not a zero sum game. Or I mean, it's usually a zero sum and lack game. of productivity are. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I got some of the funding. You guys asked earlier about funding. One of the reasons I got some of the funding from from my work was the farmers that I was working with um, were growing local land races of maize um, that were drought tolerant, and they're important sort of crop genetic resources for farmers to keep alive. And if those farming communities stop growing them, those varieties disappear from the face of the planet. They like no longer exist anymore. Um, most farmers don't grow those varieties because they're not productive at all. Um, very low productivity in terms of the corn. But for farmers that are growing on the mountains where I was doing research, like they're <coughs> drought tolerant, they can they can handle a very specific kind of drought stress where they get the, the precipitation pattern is they have a couple weeks of rain in April um, and then it's usually dry again for the whole month of, of May. So they have to sort of survive the initial like growth um, and germination from the April rains and then wait for June until it to rain again. And they, there's interest in crop breeders for those traits but not actually to to grow those varieties um but because they're so unproductive but they'll use them to to cross into more productive varieties and try to take some of those genes that allow the plants to survive different things there's always these trade-offs but yeah that was it like they were really interested in the drought resistance of these very low productivity maize cultivars anyway sorry i had to bring corn up in, into that conversation somehow matthew No, no, I think that's that's exactly right. And 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 I think that that's the that's sort of the issue is that um especially in cannabis, I don't think that it's very controversial to say that these things don't get um they don't get focused on. I mean customers aren't worried I mean, generally customers are not worried about like the drought tolerance stressors or the pest resistance of the plants that they're um of the product they're eventually consuming. Um, they might not have any consideration for that, but uh, even for breeders too, like their their hands are somewhat tied as well. Even if you did know that you had certain plants that had certain traits that work well in an environment or whatever, um, you know, it's hard to focus on those considering the other market dynamics, and that's true in their crops as well. But yeah, um, and then you add the microbial aspect too, and that's another layer. And then you know, so so I think that. I think that it would be really cool if we could see a little bit more um, uh, targeting of these of these traits. And and I think that in most of the cases where I've talked to readers, it pretty much never comes up. Or if it does come up, like you guys know, it's a bit of my white whale about pest resistance. But 
that's hard to that's hard to do in a really uh, robust way as well. So I'm really excited for um, Canvas research just looking at these traits and uh, combining them. But like you say, uh, we might run into a problem where some of these plants, like in cannabis, like they're grown and they're they exist, but they kind of exist like on. on borrowed time and whether or not the market Yeah, cares what about them enough. And that's kind of scary. the 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 other thing, the physiological thing that you were sort of dealing with, there's a reason that drought tolerance and lack of productivity go together. Like if the plant is really vigorous, it's going to need a lot of water. And if it stops Yeah. getting that water, then it, it's going to die. Right. But plants that like have adapted to sort of survive droughts do it by growing slower. By, by sort of being able to almost go into like a form of Like stasis a torpor where they're state, not yeah. grow, yeah, where they're not growing much at all. And then they'll be able to come back and grow again. Um, but yeah, they're they're absolutely sort of pulling in opposite directions, right? Um, That's another the that's the random example of this, which is farmed salmon. Farmed salmon or genetically engineered farmed salmon are genetically engineered to grow faster and to become bigger faster. And they were worried about them getting into, you know, escaping from the pens and and because they would outcompete the native salmon because bigger fish are like sexier and more attractive, I guess. But the the bigger fish require so many more resources in order to survive that they wouldn't find those resources in, in native and the next generation wouldn't be able to get enough food basically to survive. Um, so yeah, if you're if you're bred to become big and huge and you need to be well taken care of. If you're bred so that you don't need to be well taken care of, you're not going to become big and huge. Yeah, in nature, most of these plants, they didn't have to be as productive as we need them for agriculture to, like, survive Exactly. necessarily. Depends on Exactly. the plant, but in a lot of cases, like, they're so different now. And they put a lot of their energy into fighting off predation or pests and doing other things like Right. that, that then we take over for them, right? We'll be like, no, nah, you don't need to worry about that. We'll spray with chemicals or we'll, you know, do these other things so you can put all of your energy into growing the, the seeds that we want or the oils that we want specifically. So then the question becomes, what's the ultimate strategy? Is the ultimate strategy to, I mean, in the most sustainable way, I think that taking over, I mean, like even the traits, they have to work within the physical bounds of reality of what the plant can do, <laughs> right? So um, how much of that do we take over as cultivators and how much of it are, and how much of the productivity effects like flower growth, yield, but also like the terpenes, the, the metabolites, Yeah. that kind of a thing. How much of that do we give up, so to speak? And I think people And don't look at yeah. it as as a this and that when it really is. From from corn, we were so focused on getting as many as big corn kernels as we could possibly get that corn lost its ability to disperse its seeds. And now it absolutely depends on humans to uh, husk the corn, take the seeds out and plant them. Like it can't even do that for itself anymore, right? Like we've taken over everything just to kind of focus on the things that we want and said, we'll do the rest. And that's worked for thousands of years for corn at least. Um, the, losing its ability to, to disperse its own seeds at the expense of becoming more attractive to humans has allowed corn to spread all around the world and be planted and cared for by faithful humans and all sorts of you know products are developed to grow it better. So. You could look at this as this is an evolutionary game that corn won and we're Much now like a cannabis. slave.
much like cannabis. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Corn had the advantage of being legal. It's so attractive to us that we're willing to take good care of it. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I wonder if, uh, I, I mean, I feel like, I feel like in my opinion, I haven't seen very many examples, but when they do occur, um, it's really exciting that a plant can actually be really robustly resistant to like a certain pest or a, or, or a span of various pests or environmental conditions. Um, and I wonder, like, I guess there are some traits or there's some interactions that maybe are going to be like less problematic for like a metabolic resources, but ultimately that's what it is. You've got resources, they only go, uh, they have to go somewhere. And um, uh, even the defense compounds that we like that also are metabolites that we harvest for, uh, you know, they're, they're still pretty energetically um, uh, intensive, for lack of a better term, I feel like. So in some ways, some of these traits maybe are just less of a trade-off maybe that we can, we can appreciate, especially if you grow it in a place or environment where you're not going to deal with some of the problems where um, that might be more of a susceptibility. But I think that, I mean, I think that cannabis is a pretty hardy plant generally. But even so, like at a certain point as a grower, like I think that that is, um, those are the economics of it. I, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, which yeah, I hate well, to see. I'll, I hate I'll to hear that in, in videos. But. Some of the cannabis plants are a little bit finicky. And I bet a lot of people in our audience would be willing to grow one of those finicky plants because it produces really incredible, you know, harvested flower or some unique terpenes or other things like that. Um, and I think that that's the direction a lot of breeders are sort of pushing in. They'll try to sort of maximize the expression of one trait. And they end up, you know, sacrificing some of the other areas of fitness of that plant. That makes sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. And I think that from a sustainability prospect, I think that, um, like, giving the plants a bunch of nutrients and resources or the optimal amount, I should say, an optimized amount that still allows them to be very productive while also um, kind of edging towards uh, yield and quality rather than uh, defense response, I think is important. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it too a little bit to some extent. Uh, yeah. But if you're in like a really uh, austere environment, then it's kind of hard for me to think that you're going to be optimal versus other people who are growing and maybe are able to be less um, aggressed <laughs> by, by various pests. But it really depends. And I think obviously greenhouse versus indoor versus outdoor. I feel like outdoor is more sustainable, but, um, you know, it does come with, with certain costs that I think people just don't appreciate. It's absolutely more sustainable. I'll give you that left, right, and center. Growing outdoors under the sun um, without doing anything for climate control is absolutely more sustainable than trying to grow indoors under artificial lighting with lots of horsepower thrown at climate control. Um, I think there's no two ways around that. I think that we grow indoors oftentimes for legal reasons more than for productive reasons um and I, it would be interesting to see how much of that would change if the legal regime was really dismantled
yeah, if people actually had to compete and actually had to pay um, uh, and the appropriate cost, maybe not like uh, the other problem is that I think, you know, um, and this kind of gets out of cultivation, but right, like we all agree that, uh, you know, <laughs> people have, um, people get taxed uh, egregiously and there's other sorts of artificial, you know, sort of merits and demerits that make that yeah. make that equation even more complex, right? I don't yeah, understand I, why I every I don't understand why every commercial outfit doesn't use the sun, whether it's in the window or winter when there's only ten hours, you still should be using the sun even if it's an indoor cultivation. Just make the roof not make it a window, not a roof. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, what well, the hell is a window's a lot of expense. Biggest, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the one thing that we haven't brought up in the reason for all of this and Reason really that it's indoor too, and that's the security. In, in a in an industry where you it's really still cash only, it's security to have a brick and mortar with no windows. <laughs> um, that they're gonna have to take a that's bad a very good to get through the doors. That's that's the model. That's the model until federal drops because it's too much of an investment that you have yep. sitting there that the people are just gonna you know be able to go in and just take whatever the hell they want. It's it's crazy here in Michigan some of the stuff that's been going at the dispensaries. And in, in a way, know, that's just like the defense a, response we were talking about, but uh, on a human level, not a plant level, right? You yeah. can't cheat the the system, so to speak. Yeah, I, I just wanted to address. I, you know, I I help commercial growers get set up sometimes and talk to them a lot about lighting plans. Um, and they're often moving into buildings that already exist. They're leasing these buildings. They often do interior you know construction but they're not like ripping the roof off to put on a glass roof that costs probably a hundred thousand dollars or something i mean and you're just never gonna you're never gonna get that back in terms of like you know your electrical bills being lower or whatever it's just right. there's no money for that so i i understand that it's the, the thing is like we can grow bananas indoors in climate controlled rooms under leds and we choose not to because it's just cheaper to import bananas from, you know, Central America. Um, Coffee and chocolate and pineapples. Right. We could grow a lot of that stuff indoors, hydroponically, under artificial lighting with climate control. But it doesn't make a lot of sense to. Um, and if cannabis is able to be grown and moved around the planet like bananas and pineapples are grown and moved around the planet, um, then the reality is most of the cannabis production would, would not be done in like, you know, New England or, you know, Michigan or even California. Um, it'd be done in, in areas that receive more sun. Have a better. Climate. That's a good way of saying uh, the equatorial zone, right? Or closer yeah, to, you know, maybe not exactly the equatorial zone because there would be varieties in, in terms of, I don't think doing light depth and, and light supplementation are, are great ways to be sustainable in your outdoor garden either. Um, and really at the equator, it, it's always a flowering timeline. So you need to do supplemental lighting during veg in order to hold a lot of varieties out of immediately flipping a flower. Um, so there's, there's regions that have the right photo period relationship where, you know, only breeding takes care of some of that, but um yeah to move to areas where have a climate and lighting that's more so more tropical but maybe 
subtropical areas. Anyways, it's interesting, lively discussion. We're almost, and I'm sort of amazed that I look down at this. I'm like, wow, it's already 541. We almost get to kick Spartan out the door. But before we kick Spartan out the door, I'll, I'll give Spartan the floor and see if he has any, any other interesting things going on that he wants to share with us or talk about in, in areas of activism or anything else there, Spartan. No, actually, um, we just had a, a a great interview with the Michigan, one of the founding members of the Michigan Weedsters on another channel that I'm on, the, the Lesby Bud Show. And um, if anybody is interested in activism and, and what you can do in your own state, I would recommend you watch that show because we kind of asked that question. And um, Trisha there, she kind of went through her story of how she just decided one day she was going to do it kind of a thing and uh here she is today organizing events we at the capitol talking to lawmakers and uh, getting things done so um i would pass that uh that job on to uh trish who's uh I, I would say a way bigger pro than myself to see how you get started on that but really it's just it could be something as simple as a phone call it could be something as simple as a email uh, a lot of these politicians in your area don't get any input on cannabis. So if you get, if you make the only input on cannabis, a positive one that can make all the difference. You never know. And uh, I'm a big proponent of showing up in person. That's, that's what, that's what hardly ever happens. So showing up in person and talking to them, even if it's the, the staff, you know, don't feel discouraged if you just get to talk to the staff because the staff talks to that politician every single day. So if you yeah. get on a good terms with them, you bend their ear, you can uh, you can form policy and not even know it. So sometimes um, it's even better, I think, to, to get those messages in through that channel, you know, yeah. because it's like then the staff be like, like the politician comes and says, like, what are what are you hearing from people about this? And if your voice was a prominent voice and to be like, oh, man, I heard this really great argument about why we should do this or this or the other thing. So that's definitely a way to be a, a bird in the ear. Exactly. And when when that information is coming from a staff member, that's that's a politician listening. But, you know, you can sometimes come to some some politicians and you can tell from the moment one they they're not listening yep. at all. You yep. know, they're just so. Yeah. If, if you can if you can kind of get to the staff members, that's almost just as good or better. So it's like when we write letters to politicians, oftentimes there's just a staff person that tallies the count. How many letters were in favor of this? How many letters were opposed <laughs> to this? And then they'll go to the politician and be like, oh, we got 72 letters in favor of this and only 12 opposed. And that's like, be one of those 72 people that wrote one of those letters, you know? I mean, that stuff actually matters. When you go to vote in an election, there's like millions of people. When you write a letter, there might be like a couple dozen other people that you're voting against or voting with. So Yeah, and then shrink that down to the local level, and that's even yeah. more of a huge difference. It's like yep. you show up to a local town hall meeting. Oh, my God, you might be the only person in the crowd. Yep. And uh, that's a voice. You know what I mean? They'll listen, and you get your time, and you get to talk. So um, take your power, people. Take and you feel power. good about it afterwards. You absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. I got out there and I did something. Yeah. Hell yeah. Good that's on you, awesome. Spartan. And thanks for spreading the word to everybody else. No problem, man. But I, yeah, I'm going to jump out of here because I'm going to get on the Michigan Bros Grow Show, which will be starting here in about 15 minutes. Uh, 
Much love, everybody. I'm high as hell. I smoke too much this show. <laughs> Where can we find you, Spartan? Where can growers can out find, there find you? You find me. The best place you can find me is on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Um, and if you don't do the social media, it's just email spartangrown at gmail.com, right? Spartangrown at gmail.com. I got too many email addresses. That's the best one. Spartangrown at gmail.com. <laughs> Much love, everybody. <laughs> Grow those, Spartan. Yeah, keep growing, guys. Uh, too late. Peace out, Spartan. <laughs> <laughs> He'll hear it when he watches it back. I, I really appreciate the work that Spartan does in terms of the activism and how he's, you know, found his voice like that. And I love the fact that he tries to motivate everybody else to do the same thing. So join in. It's really true. All of these things really matter to us as cannabis growers. And you really can have an influence. I know there are a lot of people become jaded about the political process in different ways, but you know, don't get jaded until at least you've tried to really get your voice into the conversation. I have to agree with that. I feel like um, well, many of the things that we talked about today here, even like um, whether it's in politics or whether it's talking about like, you know, like how we, how do we as a community think that like growing this plant is at least if we're going to grow en masse or in commercial spaces, like what is appropriate, what's not appropriate. Um, and, and also how that fits in with other plants too, which I know uh, this is a cannabis specific uh, podcast, but as Dr. Coco and I, I'm sure, you know, appreciate that like um, there are other plants and, um, and, and sometimes I think that cannabis is judged obviously like in a biased or bigoted sort of way. And other times I think that there's some like, legitimate i think sort of like issues with like the growth of cannabis or or hemp in general like as a specific example and how that how that eats into other crops and that kind of a thing and how it can be in a beneficial way but then people have to justify that with like the economics of the world that we live in i know that's very complicated and convoluted but ultimately we got to be uh informed and you know um communal and talking about what we think essentially that's the sentiment that i think brings in whether it's yeah. politics on, at the higher level or whether it's like interpersonal politics that's all politics right yeah yeah i mean i think it's amazing what's been happening with cannabis at the political level over the last couple of decades um like really amazing i, I never would have predicted this like you know in the early 90s and I was coming up and I was enjoying cannabis. And I remember having a, a conversation at that point. One of my friends asked me, what, what would you do if cannabis went extinct? And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What a terrible thought that even is. But I, I guarantee you I thought that that was more likely than it becoming broadly legal everywhere. Um, so it, it's kind of amazing what's happened. And it's happened because people cared about it enough to get out there and, and sort of make their opinions, their voices heard on this it helped them enough that they wanted to make sure they still had access to it. And, you know, they knew it had been criminalized and vilified in a way that, that wasn't fair. And they were willing to put their own personal reputations on the line to change society's outlook on this plant and on, you know, what we do with it and how it affects us. Um, we're all beneficiaries of, of that work and we're all, you know, doing this show because of that work and we're able to to share our, our ideas about growing this plant because of that work. So it, it's 
it's incredible to just think about where we've come in the last couple of decades. And to lend our voices to, to keeping that going. That's pretty, it is pretty amazing because they knew back in the 1930 something, they did the tests that they knew it wasn't a gateway drug. They knew it had medical value, but they didn't, they hid it from the public and well, they didn't used to hide it. They, I mean, up until it became illegal, right, right. basically, it was one of the, it was the most was. prescribed medicine for a number of different ailments and, and afflictions. Yeah, um, and they had to wage a real serious campaign to vilify it. And there was breeding programs on American soil already by the time they made it illegal from drug companies that uh, were operating in Michigan and and other places. But once they decided to make it illegal, yeah, is what I should have put in there. Yeah, they really right. You wouldn't have never thought it would ever make it out of the jail, but it was the medical people that actually, I think, had more of you know did it most. Yeah, and, and, and it, there's been different arguments that basically allow reluctant politicians to go along with it. Right. Um, the the medical argument was certainly strong at first. That gave cover to people to be able to vote for this. The economics is a bigger one now. And let me just say the economic argument freaks me out. When, you know, new legalization goes in because they're arguing just about the tax base and making more taxable money and all this off of it. Like, that's where it comes back to us as activists, because there's a lot of legalization efforts that are really focused on that. And they want to prevent home grow or put severe limits on home grow because they're not making any tax money off of that. They're making tax money when you go and buy your cannabis at the dispensary. So they want to be able to sell you and have, you know, a monopolized market that's heavily taxed so that they can raise money to do other things. They're funding you know, all sorts of other stuff with our cannabis taxes. Um, so let, let's make it legal for other, there's other arguments about why it should be legalized instead of just focusing on increased municipal revenue or increased state revenue. But Doc, yeah. No, that is money is the bottom line. So if we can know, figure right? out, listen, a formula, which I may have, you know, if if enough people would pay for a hundred dollars a year to grow, you know, as much as they wanted, the government would make more from us than they would from the dispensaries, perhaps. I don't want to have to pay if for we could a approach it. To, yeah. But tell I really don't nominal. want to have to pay a hundred dollars to have a license that allows me to grow a plant. But you'd rather, but that's better than not to grow it at all, Doc. If they want to, if they want to make I'm not it right, it's too much money, or it wouldn't be worth right. it. Tao, it, it's right. just it goes against the principle, my values. Yeah, I understand that. But if we're gonna play the game, we have to play by their rules. There's got to no, be a way that we can appease their money okay. hungry ways. There's got to be a, a fair way. Message not it to us. But it's not the message that I want to send. I okay, want to send the message make... that you should be out there advocating for the rules that you want. This society that we live in is is we the people, right? So let your voice be heard. No, and, we the corporations for Where the society have you been? that you want. That's not the way that's not reality though anymore, Doc. It's we the corporations, we the lobbying people dictate what's gonna happen, not we the people anymore. So we have like I'm saying, there has to be a way to appease everyone and make it better for us without making it a two-limit plant count. And, or or even outlaw because the, the the money is yeah but then they altogether. but then they'll just change the rules after that you know so. and make it five hundred dollars right I'm not willing to submit I'm not willing to resign all my power like that so I do <laughs> well, understand uh, your point 
Yeah, right. I, and I, I understand your passion for that, but I just see things differently. Than Stay that. in the shadows and don't tell anybody what you're doing and do what you want. That's my opinion, too. On right. the other side of the ladder. Sham yeah, like right. that sham shield is a good, stick by. you know, I see all reliable. We're all here, you know, and I choose to be on camera because I want to be out of the shadows. I want to be able to be honest and part of a community of cannabis growers and share knowledge and, and share information and get and learn from them about the, the stuff that they're doing and all of this. I don't want to be hiding in the closet doing something that's illegal <laughs> that could put me at legal risk and of losing my property or losing my my freedom. Um, right. So I I'm, I'm going to advocate for for a set of legal regimes. And certainly there are a lot of, of rules and a lot of things that exist that aren't friendly to businesses. Um, we need to advocate for them and we need to support them. We need to show politicians that will vote for them. And that's how we get rules and regulations that work for our goals. Otherwise it's the corporations that have the ear of the politicians. Well, I, agree I, with you that. I agree with you on that side. Listen, I must say it did happen in one in Oakland back when I visited. What was that? Nineteen? Uh, no, it was 20, 2010, Maybe I went there. I forget. But in any case, the local um, whoever's in charge, county. I don't even know what it is, but they made medical. They made marijuana the lowest. Uh, man, my brain's farting. The lowest priority. Yeah, they did that in Humboldt County thing. too. They, right. they elected so, a district attorney that refused to prosecute yes. cannabis crimes. Yeah. And and it was a free for all. They had you know yeah, it was great. It was like it really was Oaksterdam when I visited. Now it's a different story, I understand. But for a time, if you get the local people that aren't going to do anything about it, no one's going to mess with you. And that's what they did pretty much. And they had back room freaking. At the at the college, you could go in the back and buy weed, and you could smoke weed right in the freaking coffee shop on Main Street. You know what I'm saying? So it can be done, but uh, it's getting harder and harder. I think that's, I think that's it, absolutely. I'm glad you said that, Tao. We don't have to surrender to the bullshit of like this has to be friendly for businesses or whatever in order for it to be this. It can be done. We can create a set of rules that work the way that we want them to, but it's not going to happen unless we get our voices out there and actually raise these arguments and explain the pros and cons of the different styles of doing this um, and and make a set of regulations that work for us that enable home grow, for example. I don't think there's any legitimate reason to allow dispensaries and not allow home grow. And I think that <laughs> those are all contrived reasons that will fall apart under scrutiny. And I'm right, especially especially now with new LED lights, because one could you can make an easy argument. You go into an HPA escrow, you put your hand underneath that light; it's hot. You'd be you could fear people until there's going to be starting fires everywhere. But the new LEDs and the new stuff is safer and better, and there's no need for anyone not to be able to grow in their closet. Yeah, exactly, but. Politicians don't always know that. People that are making the regulations don't always know that. That's where our role as advocates can can come into this. Um, I, I know that we're, our hearts are in the same place, Tao, and, and I love your passion, and uh, you know I, I, I love that. So I don't want to think I don't want to feel like we're we're on opposite sides pulling in different directions on this issue. Well, I'm reminded of the video that uh, I think I forget. I think it was Brandon who shared it the first uh, the first that I saw of the. Um, that politician, which I don't, I don't remember if she was in Kentucky or whatever, 
she was like talking about how if you grow the cannabis, if I remember right, in the soil, and then you uh, then you grow a different plant afterwards that they'll hybridize, and then you'll have weed corn or weed wheat, and then that will get into the bread, and then get everyone high. Don't do you want that? Think of the children. And Yeah, I'm that just was exactly like that is. from Tulsa, and she sounds like a complete idiot. It doesn't even make sense. The words that come out That's of her terrible. mouth, the the order of the words that come out of her mouth, don't they? They're not. They don't belong together. Like It's not it's consistent. like, No, it's like not yeah. consistent with reality. So that's why being like an informed citizen, I think, is so important. Because you and I've and we've seen videos online where people just sardonically, sarcastically just rip and tear into these politicians for saying just the most. um like ludicrous or feckless things possible and sometimes Oh, yeah. the people don't know any better the, not the people but the politicians but what they are doing is they're saying stuff with confidence and that's almost as gross to me so yeah i definitely agree with your sentiment there coco Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Um, yeah, there's some there's some really uneducated arguments going around. Um, hopefully our show helps bring a little bit of education to everybody around the topics that we really care about. And Hopefully all of you can go out and and share good knowledge to the extent that, that you enjoy, you know, taking part in this political conversation um, with the power brokers that be in your local area. Um, and that's it. And I think Spartan's been really inspirational in that to all of us because he really invests a lot of his time and energy in, in doing exactly this. He's out there really walking that walk and I admire that. So... With that said, we have reached the end of our allotted time. Let me throw it around the horn and let everybody give their contact information and their shout outs and everything else. We'll start with Brandon Rust. Hey, what's going on? Yep. Uh, yeah. If you can find me on Instagram at Earthworks, you can also go check out Bokashi Earthworks. We have the Nutri-Grill pots. We have the Humane Fertilizers. All of the cool stuff. So I'll see you guys next week. Absolutely. Thank you very much for being here tonight, Brandon. I will turn it over to Mr. Matthew Gates himself. Yeah, if you uh, are curious about some of the things I talked about with pests and all that, um, you can check me out. Well, you can see you can see me at the Living Soil Summit that's coming up on March seventh, eighth, and ninth. They have um have tickets out on that, so you can check them out. Living Soil Summit. It'll be in Pahrump, Nevada, and I'm excited to see a bunch of people. There's actually a lot of people that we pro that you probably know, chat. Um, built you know uh, a Kiss Organics people from Build a Soil. Um, various other organizations that I think are doing uh, good things educationally in cannabis. You can also find me at xenthanol.com for professional inquiries and YouTube Xenthanol um, and Instagram at Sync Angel. Wonderful. Thank you for being here tonight, Matthew. I really appreciated your contributions. And I will send it over to the American one. Tao, take it away. Dr. MJ Coco, a bang up job on the hosting tonight. You did a great fill in. Thank you. And it's always good to see everybody on the panel or everybody that was here. And, and it makes me think of all the ones we don't see sometimes. And shout out to them. And everyone in chat, if I missed any comments or anything, I've been in and out. Um, always good to see you guys. I'm the American one. You know where to find me. Everyone have a great week. And uh, we'll see you guys next week and probably somewhere in between.
Thank you, Tao, grower love. And as I start my little outro, I'll let, I'll let Matthew and Tao know. At the end of this, I'm just going to have to end the Zoom call because I don't know any other way to end the YouTube feed. So Go for it. Send it'll it. be a fairly unceremonious goodbye, and I'll say goodbye that to works. you both, both on this. And I am Dr. MJ Coco. You can find me at CocoForCannabis.com, where we run a live 24-hour chat room. Drop into our chat room and check it out. Um, I also have a YouTube channel, Dr. MJ Coco. I do various videos, a lot of uh, LED grow light testing reviews there. Um, and I have a Patreon channel. I'm Dr. MJ Coco on Patreon. Every Monday night, I do the Ask Dr. Coco show. And twice a month, we do growers chats. So if you're interested in that, you can get a free trial. Check it out at Patreon. Guys, it was a lot of fun stepping in. We, we missed Greenstock. But he's here like almost every single week. So he definitely deserves a, a break. Thanks for helping me run the show. Thanks to everybody for showing up and being here with us. Um, but a lot of love to the fellow panelists. We will be back next week. And grow love, everyone.